माई गेस्ट फॉर दिस एपिसोड ऑफ ग्लोबल डिवेलपमेंट रिव्यू पॉडकास्ट इज स्टीव क्लेली स्टीव कम्बाइन से हाईली सक्सेसफुल करियर इन टेक्नोलॉजी विद ए फिलोपिक फोकस ऑन पीस एंड सस्टेनेबल डेवलपमेंट टू शेड लाइट्स ऑन इशूज रेंजिंग फ्राम कॉन्फ्लिक्ट टू इकनॉमिक्स एंड प्रॉस्पेरिटी Steve founded the Institute for Economic and Peace in 2007 as an independent not-for-profit global research institute which analyzes the intertwined relationship between business, peace and economic development. Steve's funding and thought leadership behind the institute would see him recognized as one of the world's 100 most influential people on reducing the onset of armed violence. Institute of Economic Peace Global Leadership extends to calculating the economic cost of violence, measuring peace, risk analysis of the nation's threat level and a new understanding of positive peace. An eight-pillar model embracing the attitude institutions and structures required to create and sustain peaceful societies. As one of the world's most impactful think tank, its research is extensively used by multilaterals including the United Nations, World Bank, Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, and taught in thousands of university courses around the world. Steve is also the founder of the Global Peace Index, the world's most leading quantitative measurement for global peacefulness, ranking 163 countries and independent territories. Steve currently serves on the President's Circle for Club de Madrid, the largest forum of democratic former presidents and prime ministers working to strengthen democracy. In 2010, Steve was appointed a member of the Order of Australia for his services to the community through the Global Peace Movement. And in 2016, Steve was awarded the Luxembourg Peace Prize. Steve is also the author of Peace in the Age of Chaos. the best solution for a sustainable future in this episode of global development review podcast i discuss with steve about different aspects related to peace which includes global peace index ecological threats conflicts and consequences we try to understand how we can imagine peace in this age of chaos we also discuss the learnings from covid and pandemics that our world is witnessing these days i hope you enjoy this conversation steve first of all thank you very much for joining me to global development review podcast and it's it's a pleasure to have you here and learn from your experience and insights um first question that i just wanted to ask you is uh, how do we conceptualize peace uh, given the fact that our world is very diverse in case of values religions ethnicities cultures interest you know as in your book reflects like there is a chaos actually in around there is pandemic happening there is uh, you know kind of economic disparities are happening so within that context how do we conceptualize a peace Yeah. Well, it's a very good question uh, to open with Jaffa, and I think the conceptualizing of peace all depends on the uh, position you're coming from. So the first thing to say there's all sorts of different types of peace and there's all sorts of different nef- definitions. So certainly there's concepts of inner peace, you may have see that as being the absence of afflictive emotion, for example. 
There's other types of peace, and it can be the political peace, which politicians talk about, which is the peace which after you've been in war and the guns fall silent, and that's another type of peace. There can be peace, which is just the absence of violence or the fear of violence, and that's another form of peace. Then there can be concepts of structural peace, and that can be the kind of peace which is brought about by the institutions. So for us, I think the way I've come to look at peace is it's relative to what you're trying to do with it. And peace is a relative concept. Peace is only compared to something else to understand what it is. So the Institute for Economics and Peace, we decided to work on two different types of peace. One is what you could call a form of negative peace. And the definition for that is the absence of violence or fear of violence. And so let's say products like the Global Peace Index are built around the absence of violence or the fear of violence. And that's quite good for measurement because it's a, you can get very clearly defined measures which fit that definition. It's also a very good definition because it's something most people can identify with as being a measure of peace. That includes the lay people as well as sort of people within the profession. But when we look at it, the absence of violence and fear of violence is very good. We can measure peace. We now can compare one country to another. We can see different measures which constitute that and the difference in states of peace. But it tells you nothing about how to create peace. So now we use a second definition for that, which we call positive peace. And that's the, that's the structures, it's the attitudes, institutions and structures which create and sustain peaceful societies. And so we, how do we, now, so how do we get at that? So that positive peace, we take the Global Peace Index, and we've, developed, we've got down here in Sydney now about 50,000 different data sets, indexes, attitudinal surveys. So we use mathematical modelling, statistic, statistical approaches to now to understand those factors which are most closely associated with highly peaceful societies. And that's what we call positive peace. So, so those two types of peace are what we work with regularly. Thank you, Steve, for this. I also would like to, this is like a personal question for you because I was reading your book, uh, Peace in the Age of Chaos, and you mentioned that you have a very, very successful businessman in Australia and and based on your experiences in Democratic Republic of Congo, you have uh, have uh, started working in the field of peace and, and started you know, creating knowledge and education for peace. I'm still wondering, like, what, what inspired you to hope for a peace in that? Yeah, so look, if I look at it, in many ways, I'm an accidental peace man. I didn't set out to be studying peace. It was, wasn't conscious effort. It's just that life took me there. So if we look, go back and I look at my life. So I started off as a computer engineer, a software engineer. I was really quite a quiet, retiring sort of guy, like nothing better than just writing computer programs, loved it. And so he wrote two programs and launched two companies off that. First one ended up public list on NASDAQ, the second on the Australian Stock Exchange. And so made quite a bit of money out of that. And then sort of would have been maybe 25 years ago, could be a bit longer, 27 years ago, 
I uh, start, decided I wanted to do something constructive with the money, so I decided to focus on developmental aid, working with the poorest of the poor. And so it's mainly focused on Africa and uh, Northeast Asia, Burma, Laos, Cambodia, but also did work in India, in Nepal, in the East Timor, and a number of other places. And so working with the poorest of the poor, it took me into a lot of war zones, near-post war zones, and I was actually in northeast Kabul in the Congo, which I guess is one of the more violent places in the world, about 18 years ago. And I walked through there, I started to think, well, what are the most peaceful nations in the world? And what can we learn from them? And so when I got back to Sydney, searched the internet, couldn't find a thing. And that's how the Global Peace Index was born. But that poses a very, very profound question because if a simple businessman such as myself can be walking through Africa and wonder what are the most peaceful nations in the world and haven't been done, then how much do we know about peace? If you can't measure something, can you truly understand it? You can't measure it. How do you know whether your actions are helping you or hindering you in achieving your goals? You simply don't. So... Then, so I started to look into it more. What I realised, even when people were studying peace, they were generally studying conflict, okay? They weren't actually studying peace. And the study of peace is something quite different. And it gives you different outcomes. And we can think about an analogy, let's say, with health. So pathology, great breakthroughs in the study of pathology. Neither of us are going to die of a heart attack young. We're curing cancers. So really good to do. But it wasn't until we studied healthy people that we realised what it took to stay healthy or be resilient without getting sick. Right diet, correct mental disposition, regular exercise. And you're not going to learn any of those things through studying someone on their deathbed. And so the analogy, I think, is the same with peace. And so that put me down a whole new track. And then so sort of looked at it more, and I guess this is a business background, I really realised that there was an intimate connection between wealth and peace. So that took us on a journey also now of why we ended up with the Institute for Economics and Peace. So that was, the under, that was to understand the intersection between business, peace and economics, with special emphasis on metrics to measure peace and then to be able to ascribe an economic value to changes in peace. And that's how the Global Peace Index came about. But there's something really quite profound in that. It just comes back to questioning, okay, asking simple questions. And quite often they're fantasy questions. You don't think they're going to go anywhere. You run them down and you've got a pot of gold. This is one of the important work from Institute of Economic and Peace that you founded. Uh, it's Global Peace Index. And uh, I, I'm just wondering why why the Global Peace Index is needed and 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 what is its significant? What are the factors it focuses upon? And uh, how these parameters or factors are conceptualized? These are the certain questions that I would like to understand about the Global Peace Index and also uh, how Global Peace Index is measured by Institute of Economics and Peace. Sure, sir. If we look at the Global Peace Index, as I said earlier on, uses the absence of violence or fear of violence as the definition of peace. Now, when we take that further, we end up with three different domains. 
And so the first is what we call internal safety and security. And that's things like, let's say, the homicide rate, uh, violent crime rate, it'd be acts of terrorism, be the number of police per 100,000 population, uh, number of people in jail per 100,000 populations, availability of guns, levels of violent demonstrations and such. So that's the first domain, safety and security. Second domain is ongoing conflict. And the third domain is militarisation. And that sort of consists of the seven different indicators. And so they come together, and there's 23 indicators in all to create the Global Peace Index. And so it's a composite index. But one of the things which really makes the index stand out is since we're using the absence of violence or fear of violence as the definition and their measures of that, it's decoupled from concepts like GDP. So if you look at most indexes like social progress indexes, happiness and well-being indexes and such, they're really highly correlated with GDP and the things associated with GDP, like longer life expectancy, more education rates, et cetera, et cetera. So a lot of of these things are just byproducts of GDP. But seeing seeing we use the absence of violence, fear of violence, it stands alone. And that makes it excellent for them to be able to do analysis to really, truly understand what are the things which are associated with peace. And I think that's one of the things which really makes it stand out. And also, so we've done it. We've been at it now 15, 16 years coming up. Yeah, sorry, 15 years coming up to 16. And so in that time, what we've found, or if we, let's say, we'll just look over the last decade. So if we look over the last decade, actually more countries improved in peace than deteriorated. Most people wouldn't think that, would they? So I think it's 86 countries improved, 75 countries deteriorated. Now, however, global peace actually deteriorated by 2.4%. So what we know from that then is that when countries fall in peace, they fall at a much faster rate than what they do when they improve in peace. So peace is a gradual process, okay, when you've, with the, the, uh, with the falling piece, particularly if you go into conflict, you can fall off a cliff very, very quickly. Also, you can now start to see the changes in the pattern of peace over time. And so one of the more interesting patterns is a growing global inequality in peace. So what we find the countries at the top of the global peace index are becoming more peaceful, while the countries at the bottom are becoming less peaceful. So you've got this widening gap. And the other thing too is we do a lot of systems analysis around it. So you've got two attractive planes if you like when you look at global peace. One is at the top and the other is at the bottom. What happens is when you get to the top the global peace index we, since we've been doing it we've had no countries which have been in the top 15 have a dramatic fall in peace. You go to the bottom end of the index on the other hand you find that once you get down into those conflict traps, it's very, very hard to get out of. We've had no countries which have been in the bottom. Ten of the index make substantial, really substantial improvements. They've improved, but it's, as I said, peace improves very, very gradually. 
Now, if we start to look at the changing landscape of peace, uh, we find a number of interesting factors. So one is that homicides globally have been decreasing over the last 15 years, increased, increased quite dramatically, other than maybe in Latin America, where the number of places have increased, like Mexico. Violent demonstrations, however, they're up about they're up over 200% in the last decade. So they're increasing by about 10% per annum per year. I think it's 191% increased in the last decade. And so those violent demonstrations, they're getting worse. Now, if we turned around and look at militarisation, for example, we go back for 15 years, it had been improving every year up to about four years ago. Then it plateaued in the last two years, the measures have got worse. And this is probably seeing change in trends. So as we're moving forward, we're probably going to see militarisation increase globally. And that comes back and it's related to rising tensions, let's say, between Russia and Europe, Russia and the US, and then the uh, rising tensions in the uh, yeah, 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 Indo-China Indo Sea and the Pacific. So... That's some of the some of the things which we can pull out of and which we can, which we can say. Thank you, Steve, for these insights. As as you mentioned, there there is increase of militarization uh, over the past few decades, and it also uh, brings me to question, which is related to your book and and also your argument that if we have peace, uh, it it is more beneficial for the economy of the world and. Uh, you know, if we spend more on on civil civil expenses than the military expenses, it will be more beneficial for the countries also who are involved in the conflict. So, I was just wondering uh, whether you were suggesting that and the economy of war is not beneficial, uh, and, and and we should focus on the peace. It is more economically beneficial for for the countries who are involved in the peace. Quite often, with the military, the problems are counterintuitive. So if you build a, a, a fighter jet, it might cost you, we'll say, $5 billion, $15 billion to build, okay? Then you've got to have the maintenance to run it. You've got to have the personnel to man it. And then obviously you've, uh, you've got to let bombs off every now and again to make sure that it's functioning correct, correctly. Now, if you have to use it and it saves piece of the nation from aggressive from another aggressive nation, then it's really a highly beneficial investment. But on the other hand, if you didn't really need to build it, then that was wasted money. So the whole trade-off of what is the right size of the military is very, very difficult to come to because we realize we don't live in a peaceful world, so you need the military. But there's also excessive expenditure on the military in many countries as well. And so if we look at the... Now, the other thing, too, is we come back and we look at the analogy of the fighter jet. Now, the 5 to $15 billion you've spent on your fighter jet, now, if you put that and you'd spent that, let's say, on building infrastructure, build it on a you know, stimulating investment, spend it on a better health system, there's a product productivity benefit which comes back from that, which is well over and above the initial investment. Whereas if you're looking at the investment in the fighter, you've only got the initial investment. It's sunk money. You're not getting anything for it. So now the work we've done, the Institute for Economics and Peace, when we look at it, 
The cost of bonds, the global economy in 2020, was nearly 15 billion, sorry, 15 trillion dollars. Okay, 15 trillion dollars. And that's 11.6% of global GDP. And that's a sizable amount of money. Now, just to put that into perspective, 1% of that, so just 1%, is the equivalent of all the money spent on overseas developmental aid in 2020. Okay, just to put it in perspective. Now, 10% of it would be enough to create three new economies the size of Ireland, Denmark, and Switzerland. Now, none of us can imagine a world which is absolutely peaceful, but it's really within our imagination to manage it 10% more peaceful. It's 10% more peaceful and could direct half that money to overseas development alone, you'd increase it by 500%. How far would that go in terms of solving a lot of our ecological issues and climate change issues? It'd go a long, long, long way. Now, that's all fine, but if we come back now and we look at it in another light and we start to look at it the, uh, through the relationship to business. So... Countries which are improving in positive peace compared to countries which are deteriorating in positive peace have better than 2% per annum higher GDP growth rate. That's really substantial. So we're talking something like 3.5% to about 1.1%. Countries which are improving in positive peace compared to countries which are deteriorating have lower inflation rates, lower interest rates, the inflation is three times less volatile. Foreign direct investment is twice as high. And sovereign ratings by the international agencies improve over time compared to ones which deteriorating positive peace, which decrease over time. So as we can see, there's this really strong argument for business around sort of positive peace and peace. So now... What was fascinating with positive peace, we started off trying to find peace, but seeing we had uh, the Global Peace Index, and I mentioned earlier on, it's independent of GDP. So from that, we came up with a structure, which is an eight-part topology uh, called positive peace. What we can found with that is that the very same structures which create for peaceful societies create a kind of environment in which other things we want thrive. So one of them is higher GDP growth. It's better measures on well-being and happiness, better measures on performance on the ecology, uh, uh, better performance on measures of development. So in many ways, positive peace describes an optimal environment for human potential to flourish. And the beautiful thing of that is we can take positive peace and turn it around to an index. And as we turn it around to an index, now we can see the movement of societies in terms of their ability to, for human potential. And so, in many ways, positive peace describes the optimal environment under which human potential can flourish. And for me, that's profound, and I think it's a, a transformational concept. We've now sort of got something which we've empirically derived, which clearly shows what we need to have a flourishing society. And all started with peace. But, find it that amazing. In other ways, I guess it's not amazing.
Yeah, yeah. One one of the important uh, concern that is amplifying uh, is is the ecological threat, uh, Steve. And uh, your Institute of Economic and Peace is also publishing an ecological threat report, uh, which which focuses on on water risk, food risk, and so on. Um, I just want to know from you, like, how do you think, like, uh, are these ecological threats uh, are going to amplify the conflict across the world, and uh, where do we see the role of international bodies like United Nations or European Union? In, in, in reducing such, uh, in minimizing those risks of ecology. Yeah, well, I think what's I think we we, we yeah, so you, I think you alluded to we develop an ecological threat register each year. We've just released the last one, but what really blew me away, just really surprised me, was how strong the relationship between ecological degradation and conflict was. So the 15 countries with the worst ecological de- degradation, 11 of them are currently in conflict and four of them are on what we call our watch list for conflict. So we look at them, we then sort of go back and we pick up got 30 nations which says hotspots. And when we look at these 30 nations, which are hotspots, so they're a combination of countries with but with very bad ecological degradation and also very weak societal resilience, which we measure through positive peace. 28 of those 30 countries are in the bottom half of the Global Peace Index. Now, when we come back and look at it even further, we find also that there's a whole range of issues which seem to come together. So if we look at, let's say, Africa, for example, so it's got more of, these country, more of these countries with ecological degradation than anywhere else. But the population in sub-Saharan Africa is projected to increase by 90% in the next 30 years, 90%. You've got 12 countries there where the population is going to more than double. And these are all in these hotspot countries. Every one of them is in a hotspot country. And so what you've got coming together when you look at it in more detail is a range of things. You've got the lack of water, and the lack of water means they can't grow enough food, okay? That then creates conflict, and quite often they'll form along ethnic or religious lines. Then on top of that, you've got these huge population growth, and then also you've got very, very weak governance, and that weak governance we, or resilience we measure through positive peace. So all these things come together. Now, if we go back the other way, we look at this concept of positive peace, and we look at the countries which have got high positive peace, none of them have major water shortages. All of them are able to grow enough food to feed their, to feed their population. Most of them have got a, a, a very, very small population growth. And even where places like Singapore, they can't grow enough food, they've got export industries which give them the capital to import the food. So or another one would be the UAE, for example. So okay, so all of this comes together and it's systemic, okay? Just pulling it apart and saying one thing causes another. So now let's look at one of the real hotspots in the world, the Sahil. Now, if you're looking into the Sahil, you've got all these problems I've just mentioned. In fact, Niger, 
It's going to have the largest population, projected to have the largest population growth in the next 30 years in the world, 161%. And it's already ecologically massively degraded. So now let's look into the Sahel and see what's happening there. So you've got the UN does a lot of great work, does a lot of great work. But you've got, let's say, UN peacekeeping in there, uh, working You've got a whole lot of Islamist terrorists up there and you've got tribal conflicts as well. So you've got UN peacekeeping there. Uh, you might have UNICEF there, which is working with the kids. You'll have UNDP, which is a, a, a working on developmental aid. And there'll be also silos. You'll have WASH programs and you'll have other programs as well. You have UNHCR looking at the refugees, which come out of uh, these kind of issues. Then you'll have the World Bank working with the government to try and sort of improve the governance and governance. And then you might have the IMF, which is in there looking at the uh, facilities to load money and to be able to better stimulate business in these areas. And I could keep going. You've got the UN Population Fund, which is in there working on population. But if these problems are systemic in nature, then the institutions to address them need to be systemic. And that's a radical change from the way we go about doing global governance today. So I think that's probably the message which I carry away. We're really looking at the reform and we're really looking at trying how do we address some of these wicked issues. And we've really got to start to analyse the problems systemically rather than of individual series of problems. And then once we've analysed and truly understand it, build an institution which can address it. And these institutions can be focused on an area. It could be a large area. It could even be a small area. The interventions have to be systemic. Thanks, Steve. Uh, one, one of the connecting questions uh, to the ecological threat is our current situation is the, like, which is pandemic, like COVID, uh, which is, uh, you know, uh, has created a kind of, of uh, trouble or disturbance in our lives. So, uh, but it is also a learning for us uh, for for the reflections. So, and also in your book, you are talking about um, COVID and, and that learning. So, I just would like to understand from you what is the way forward and where we are lacking actually. Yeah, I think COVID's been is a real test, and it's obviously not long way from over. I think the economic implications from COVID are going to be with us for a long while yet. Uh, uh, we can just see some of the economy starting to turn down. You can see borders starting to get shut again. So one, so one of the things we saw with COVID initially is that sort of levels of violence dropped in a whole range of different areas. Uh, so there'd be things like violent crimes, number of demonstrations, homicides, all those kind of things. Now, so if you did get issues with the uh, your psychological issues, uh, your, your mental trauma was on the increase, as was domestic violence. But that was only short-lived. By the time you got to the end of 2020, all those things which had dropped were back to their, their, their levels beforehand. And we can see, as the time moves on, there's been all sorts of demonstrations around, around COVID. So... So mentioned, violent demonstrations had been on the uh, increase uh, about 191% over the last uh, decade. And so that trend is just going to increase. 
So as we come out of the back end of COVID, I think a lot of the economic issues we've got is going to fuel areas of the underlying issues we've got dealing with the inequity and other sorts of things. I think one of the things we can see is, you know, if we look at the uh, number of people who are food insecure globally, that had, for decades that had been improving every year up to 2014, and every year since then it's got worse. The biggest deterioration happened in 2020. That's about 24%. But if we go back to 2014, there are 44% more people food insecure now than there was in 2014. And so that's a massive number. It's about 2.3 billion people. And that's about 30% of the world's population. In fact, Sub-Saharan Africa, just about two out of every three people there are food insecure. And so these things are going to really cause issues going forward. So many countries have massively increased their debt. Uh, Productivity has been coming off before COVID. They've been static before. COVID for a number of years in the developed countries. So I think we need to be able to look at new ways of being able to reinvigorate societies. For looking through the lens of positive peace, the uh, corruption globally has increased. Sort of other things have improved, like business environment, education, for example. But we've got well fun- with the well-functioning government pillar, positive peace is remained pretty much static. There hasn't been much, any improvement in that at all. And if we come back and we look at a lot of the attitudes which are measured through positive peace, we can find that they're deteriorating. Concepts like group grievances, for example, another concept called fractionalised elites, that's where the elites of the world, the elites in a country, fight amongst themselves rather than that sort of, that really has bad impact on governance and the ability of governments to govern. Find that's on the increase. Concepts of inequity uh, are rising as well. Uh, we can see that sort of with just, as you're looking at the asset, uh, your, your prices just going up radically in the last 18 months as the economies have been stimulated while there's been a, a record numbers of unemployment in many places. And sort of the, in, in a number of other things as well. Misinformation is another one which is on the rise. So we really need to come back and particularly in the Western developed societies, come back and really start to look at these fundamentals and work out how to change them. That's why in my book, I talk Peace in the Age of Chaos, I talk a lot about this. And it's about positive peace when combined with systems thinking. It's a transformational concept with which we can use to regenerate and reinvigorate the societies we live in. If we want to have a positive impact on the world, the nature of peace or development, for many of the people listening to this podcast, one of the best things we can do is work out just how do we reinvigorate our Western democracies. Because when they're strong, they can extend out. When they're weak, they can't. Steve, there are also uh, there is also a fact that there have been some historical wrongs that happened which, which stimulated um, conflicts across the world, like the, the colonization and the aftermath post-colonial and uh, repercussions uh, are the racism, are, are the issues of inequalities around the world, discrimination. Uh, these are also some of the factors that, you know, contributes towards the conflict. So 
I just would like to understand from you that how do we uh, repair these historical wrongs and how do you see in, 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 in global peace index or in imagining global peace? How do you, how do you see these factors? Global peace factors are very important factors. Quite often they can be the backdrop of other issues. So these are the flashpoints. And so let's say if we look at the flashpoint, the flashpoints quite often can there'll be two, two different ethnic groups, for example. The flashpoints and really sort of they can be economic injustices. Okay. And some of these things can have the historical roots in systems thinking, for example, this is concept of path dependency. So a system's along a path and you've got to, and it's it's moving along a particular path. And to understand the path, you know, let's say it's a society, you've got to look at its history. And the history tends to create the, a lot of the cultural norms and the values of the system which keep it moving forward. So one of the, you know, the first things, you, one of the things you do need to do is really understand the cultural backgrounds and what are the encoded norms around those uh, cultural backgrounds. And then that gives you an idea of what do you need to change. And quite often it won't be sort of going, well, let's have a program to be more tolerant. It will lie around, let's have a program to sort of address some of the inequities. How can we get two groups which now working together could be in business they can mutually gain benefits and uh, and that's a great way of sort of building peace if people have got the mutual self-interest that really helps so i think it's very hard just to put up a bland answer Uh, we could also we need a world which is more tolerant it's really easy to say but it's really getting down under the issues and better understand them and then tackle them, as we've been saying, from a systemic perspective. Thanks, uh, Steve, for these insights. Uh, my last question to you is, is like, uh, although we are witnessing a lot of chaos all around and, and there have been political, economic, territorial, conflict-related risks all around the world, but... Uh, um, getting an inspiration from you, like how do we imagine peace in this world of chaos? Well, let's face it, peace in the age of chaos is a catchy title. Yeah. So if you're writing a book and you want it to sell, you need a catchy title. Yeah. And there's truth, there, there's a lot of chaos out there in the world at the moment. But we also quite often miss it, miss the things which are really working. So quite often, so Often, I think, we need to focus on the positive. So one of the things with peace, because peace is generally the absence of something, okay, Uh, and it's very hard for media to actually write a story that there hasn't hasn't been a mugging in uh, New York in the last uh, week, okay? Not going to happen, is it, okay, because it's, it's, it's the absence. So a lot of the time, the good news is actually missing. And so... Us as human beings, what we really need to do is stay focused on the positive, try and find where the positive is. And then, look, if we want a peaceful world, we've got to focus it from an individual level. Like it's me and you, how in our immediate vicinity do we make things more peaceful? It's like you go into a coffee shop to get a coffee. Smile at the person that gives you the coffee. Make a compliment, okay? Be friendly to people. 
uh, within your family environment, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. try and be more tolerant. If you're starting to feel you're getting a bit angry, pull back. Think about it. And like, you might be very justified to get angry, okay? That's not to say you're not, but it's probably not your best your way of being able to achieve your goals in the end. So, so just sort of when one has afflictive emotions, just pull back, think about them a little bit. And but these are help people, okay? Just, you, don't, you don't have to do a lot, just little acts of kindness. And all these things have a rippling effect which help in creating a more peaceful world. And that's something we all can do. It's very, very hard for us to go out and change, let's say, climate change, a very serious issue. But when we look at the emissions, we look at the US, China and India, that's where all, that counts for about 70, over 70% of the world's emissions. And so they're the places where climate change is going to be won or lost. So little acts of kindness and work within your own environment. And if you've got a cause, like a good cause, work for it. It's really good. But it's a lot of the time the little things really count. And they'll just really help with your own personal happiness. Just end the interview at this note. Um, Thank you very much, Steve, for joining me. And it's a great pleasure to have you here and to learn from your insights. And uh, thank you very much for that. Okay, thanks, Jeff. It's been really good. I've got to run because I've got to get on to this other call now. Okay, thanks, mate. I'll look forward to hearing it. And uh, good luck. Good to see you doing good things, mate. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you very much.